Cara, Dreen, come and join us. Uh, Brian, join us as well. And um, let's have a conversation about some things that I think have uh, made this place about as quiet as I've ever heard it in a meeting full of this many people. Dreen, I have to start with you. Uh, I'm, I'm perfectly willing and proud and able to sit here as a representative of a theology faculty and some of my colleagues are here too and I'm not exactly sure how to respond to your potent challenge but it needs to be unpacked and I'm willing to be part of the unpacking. So we're crusaders and we want women to be pastors and we'll raise money to help them get jobs and we'll move heaven and earth for justice and we do that as males and I think you're telling us that there's still some subtle thing goes on and these people who are so precious to us and for whom we're willing to spill our blood can still get through to the end and say they were trying to put me into a man's box. Know, That's really it. It's terrible, isn't it? And, and the women, as I said, they acknowledge that the, that the guys go through that too, but it's different for them because it's about their identity, it's about their gender. Mm. So, yeah, it's a hard one. But um, so one of the ways that I think would work is to actually put more gender-inclusive models in ministry. Like, for example, James Fowler, we all know him for being, you know, spirituality and seven stages of spirituality, but we have an amazing woman called Nicholas Slee, 2008, I think she wrote her PhD, incredible work, where she really um, built on James Fowler's work, but she discovered through, you know, hundreds of interviews with women that actually it wasn't a linear process. Um, women, in the terms of their spirituality, they actually work good in groups and they actually mm. talk and they, and they encourage each other and that's part of their spirituality and, and faith formation. So, for example, we need to put those kind of models into the program so women can actually go, yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm. I, was, I was very challenged by what you had to say. I guess I've known um, in my work in relationships that men and women construct their view of reality differently um, and I hadn't really thought about that in terms of uh, ministry in the way that you were articulating and I wondered what kind of help you might be able to give us males to understand that whole deconstruction process or that that whole process because you know essentially I mean it seems like because we see things differently and we come to things differently and maybe God calls differently I'm not sure about that but um, how do we actually change that I mean it, it sounds like we're we're really talking about a cultural change it is and you know and I'm admitting that it is a big thing that we have to do but if we're serious about training women and wanting them to lead churches and to not just survive but to actually thrive we're actually going to have to unpackage and look at the bigger picture and so for example you know should there be a ministry box now of course we're talking about conferences we're talking about divisions mm. um you know the way that we taught to evangelize for example the way we taught as kylie talked about leadership those kinds of things we need to start understanding that there's a bigger world out there 
um, you, know, you have to look on YouTube and <laughs> all the various other places to realize that we don't have everything right and it's maybe it's time for us to transform mm. and to be bold enough to say, okay, we need to really come to terms and you know, and as Cara has said, we are so grateful to the men who have supported us and, and who have loved us and been with us on our journey. I remember Jonathan Barrett, you know, in a big session, he stood up and uh, he said, and there's this one female, there's, I mentioned no names, there's this one female pastor, of course I put my head down, and he was fighting for 2%. He says she's got her own district of churches and she's only getting 98%. So for me, it didn't, you know, I, you know, it was okay. But he was fighting for a principle, and they changed that. So we appreciate you and we love you, but we really need to sit at the table and we really need to flesh out some of the things that, that you don't know, and we're here to tell you. Mm. Well, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I understand that there are a number of levels there at which a female pastor might encounter this difference of attitude, you know, culturally. And it sounds like, from, from what's been said, that, you know, a lot of male colleagues in ministry have been very supportive and understanding. But it's the people in the local church who get up and walk out that really has a devastating effect, I imagine. So, you know, what, what sort of process do, do we extend beyond the theological training to, to bring about but that? Cara, you were telling us that in your class, how many, what was the percent of people that thought it was okay for women to be ministers? Um, anecdotally, when I went through, which was about five years ago, there was still about 50% who were against it. Um, okay, so you, the, half the people you were sitting with in class yeah. had very severe questions about whether yeah, you should be sitting They still treated there. me with respect and acceptance and I, I never felt that any animosity but I'd heard that there'd been a huge debate in a class that I wasn't present in yes. um, where it was pretty much split around 50-50. Mm. Yes. So it's hard isn't it? I mean to, I mean this is the reality. So why do we women do it? Because we called and we do it because we know the road is going to be tough but it would be so nice to see you know bigger changes being made. Mm. Cara, I want to come to your experience at San Antonio. It was a wretched experience for me and I wasn't even there. But, but you, <laughs> you were sitting there in the bleachers or on the floor. You were a delegate. I was a delegate, were, yes. I, I read a, an account by an American woman pastor. She wasn't a delegate. She was sitting up in the bleachers and she had some friends from the Caribbean. They were sitting together, lovely family and all they knew about each other was their names. They didn't know anything about their roles. And they'd been very kind and friendly to her and it came down to the vote and the speeches and the cheering and the jeering and they were up on their feet with their fists pumping the air, mum and dad, um, cheering that righteousness had finally prevailed. And, and they had no idea that sitting beside them was a called woman pastor who was literally crying into a program, and, and they were potentially brothers and sisters in the family and friends. Did, were you sitting with other people um, that could share your pain? Were you sitting there in isolation? 
No, I was blessed because I was a delegate and I was with my South Pacific division, who okay. the majority of which were very much um, yeah. affirming. And Danny was there, and and I and there was another gentleman that I don't to this day I don't know his name, but he was one of the last men who were trying to fight to to get the time extended and to have some some further conversation, and, and he was thwarted in it. But he because he had just been up at the mic, he actually sat down near me um, right at the close when we were all called to pray and so I prayed with him and it was mm. moving because he, he seemed like a knight to me um, yeah. who had done his best at the battle and came back, you know, defeated and wounded and it was very moving. Yeah. It's hard for me to uh, kind of get my words together here because I found your presentation um, very moving. Um, the one word that's, that sort of stood out to me um, in what you were saying about what happened at San Antonio um, was the word shame. Mm -hmm. And I just was really, um, I guess I'd never really thought in this context about how one might view the, the, the organisation operating in a shameful way or in a way that would shame people and um, I immediately started thinking of many instances where I felt that myself and I, I wonder how do you survive such dissonance when you, you know, think about your church in that way? Yeah, that was probably the biggest thing that, that I felt there. Coming back, I felt like this huge, yeah, burden of, of this blanket of shame was just hovering over me. Um, I came back to my local church who, you know, loved me and I love preaching and, and typically that's, that's a highlight for me in the pastoral um, role. But to preach that day, coming back, I, f I, f I felt like I could hardly speak. My vo people said, is something wrong with you? Like, my voice wasn't mm. strong. It was, I, I struggled with that. I, and I didn't expect that to happen. Um, how I have dealt with it, um, forgiveness. I, and I, I was blessed, our ministerial secretary up there, um, Russell caught up with me in the weeks following and asked me how I was doing. And I, sh I was shared honestly how I was feeling. And he just took me through a process of, of forgiveness, um, specifically naming what had happened, forgiving, forgiving Ted. <laughs> um, mm. And it, 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 I needed to, just to forgive them for what they had, had done. And, and since then, it, it comes up every so often, but we are called, we continue. And I am blessed because of where I serve, the, the support that I've been given and the, oh, I am, mm. I'm blessed, so. Thank you, thank you for your testimony.